0: Let's now turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We'll read through the whole chapter. And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching... We're not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. However, we speak wisdom among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew, For had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But, as it is written, eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed them to us through his Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual but the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. In connection with our scripture reading, we we'll turn to the Heiliger Catechism, Lord's Day 25. It is by faith alone that we share in Christ and all his benefits. Where then does that faith come from? The Holy Spirit works it in our hearts by the preaching of the Holy Gospel and confirms it by the use of the holy sacraments. What are sacraments? Sacraments are visible, holy signs and seals. They were instituted by God so that by our use of them he might make us understand more clearly the promise of the gospel and seal that promise. And this is God's gospel promise. He grants us forgiveness of sins and eternal life by grace because of Christ's one sacrifice accomplished on the cross. Are both the word and the sacraments then intended to focus our faith on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross As the only ground of our salvation, yes, indeed, the Holy Spirit teaches us in the gospel and confirms by the holy sacraments that our entire salvation rests on Christ's one sacrifice for us on the cross. How many sacraments did Christ institute in the New Testament? Two, holy baptism and the Holy Supper congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, Lord's Day 25 uh, introduces a rather extensive treatment of the sacraments, the meaning of baptism and the Lord's Supper. But I want to focus with you tonight on the answer to question 65 uh, concerning where faith comes from. Where does faith come from? And uh, the importance of this question has been made clear in the previous Lord's days, as we consider the fact that it's only by faith that we are united to Christ. Only by faith are we united to him and thus share in all his benefits. Uh, Only by faith are we righteous uh, before God. Only by faith are we justified in God's sight through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Only by faith are we uh, able to do good works. Without faith, it's impossible to please God, to use the language of Scripture. Without faith, it's impossible to go to heaven. Without faith, it's impossible to be a Christian. It's impossible to live like a Christian. So everything depends on true faith. And furthermore, true faith is not some... Uh, easy exercise of natural powers or abilities that we have of ourselves. It doesn't originate with ourselves. It doesn't originate in human insight or ability or freedom to choose. It is God's work. It is God's work in our souls. It's a miracle that any of us should have true and living faith. It's produced by god's power, but it's also worked by means or methods uh that God has appointed, and their means their methods that are judged to be irrelevant, rather useless or even contemptible uh, by human wisdom. Our theme expresses basically the the point of the Passage we're considering from this uh, Lord's Day, and that is that God works faith uh, by the preaching of the gospel. It's God's work, and he does it by the means that he has appointed, and that is the preaching of the gospel. Now we want to begin by uh, considering the message that we believe. Faith is belief in the truth. It's actually defined that way. In scripture, it is a belief in the truth. It's the knowledge of and uh, acceptance of what the word of God teaches. And that in itself, though familiar to us, is, uh, it's not a common view of faith. View, uh, faith is viewed by many as a kind of, of, a will to believe or a kind of positive thinking or a, a kind of leap, uh, to Claim to something that people find helpful and useful in their lives to give them comfort. But the idea of faith as a simple acceptance and belief of the truth, well, such language is actually offensive to many people because that involves a claim to know truth. And increasingly that very concept uh, is viewed as rather narrow-minded and bigoted in our world. But faith is a belief of the truth, the truth that is revealed by God. Faith is not simply some optimism that everything is going to work out fine. It's not some general belief even in a God or the idea that everybody goes to a better place when they die. That's kind of the substance of uh, much so-called faith today. Remember how Lord's Day 7 defines true faith. First of all, as a sure knowledge, whereby I hold for truth everything that God has revealed in his word. And then it gets more specific and defines faith in terms of that hearty trust, that sure confidence that not only to others, but to me also. Forgiveness of sins and righteousness are freely given by the grace of God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And then the next question and answer uh, asks, what is necessary to believe in order to have such true faith. And then it says all that's promised in the gospel. And then it refers to the Apostles' Creed. So there is a definite content to faith. It is a belief in the truth. But we also uh, have to appreciate the fact that there is a special focus uh, to saving faith. Consider verse 2 of our scripture reading where Paul says, I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ, and him crucified in other words Jesus Christ and him crucified was the focus of Paul's preaching and teaching now this stated here with reference to the Corinthians who boasted in in wisdom but this characterized Paul's gospel ministry it was focused upon Jesus Christ there's actually even a sharpening of focus in this statement There is Jesus Christ, first of all. And that involves the proclamation of the Son of God, who according to the promises of Scripture concerning a coming Messiah, was actually incarnate of a virgin, and who fulfilled the Scriptures as He went about doing good, and He performed these wonderful works of God. His healing ministry and His powerful prophetic teaching ministry he preached Jesus Christ in the fullness of his person and work. But there's even a sharpening of, of gospel focus in this description of his preaching when he adds, and him crucified. There's a laser-like focus upon this one event. This one event which uh, the famous hymn by J. Gresson Machen says, of the cross of Christ, it towers o'er the wrecks of time. The cross of Jesus Christ, the very central focus of gospel preaching, what God has done in His Son, reconciling the world unto Himself by His substitutionary death, whereby He took upon Himself the sins of the world and paid the penalty of our guilt, and suffered the judgment of God in our place, and obtained forgiveness and righteousness and eternal life. He gloried in the cross. And true gospel preaching teaches every believer to glory in the cross of Jesus Christ. Now this focus... It, it involves in its exposition, in its proclamation, it involves some pretty solemn, we might say it involves some pretty dread realities. It involves facts of human guilt and shame and judgment. It involves an honest, uh, consideration of God's holy law broken. It involves the reality of hell. Hell, real! It involves God's avenging justice as something that is necessary. God's justice required the death of His only begotten Son. If guilty sinners are to be spared, He cannot spare His own Son. And you see, without serious and deep attention to these things, Christ crucified remains unknown to the hearts of sinners. Without serious attention to these things, the cross of Jesus Christ is judged as offensive or irrelevant or foolish Or if people don't dare to say that, they just kind of ignore it. Or they teach it in vague, general terms of some expression of divine love. We know not how. You know, you're not going to find a liberal church that's simply all about tolerance and acceptance and niceness to everybody without judgment. You will not find such a church that proclaims Christ crucified as the heart of its message. Because it only makes sense against the background of the reality of sin and judgment and the need for the honor of God's holy name to be vindicated. In chapter 1, verse 18 of uh, 1 Corinthians, it says that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. In verses 23 and 24 of this same chapter, it says, We preach Christ crucified, to the Jews a stumbling block, and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, And the wisdom of God. The cross is the supreme display of God's redeeming power and his wisdom. Wisdom whereby God in eternity devised the way in which guilty sinners might be saved without compromise of God's righteousness and truth, but in a way that exalts it, that magnifies it in the person of his Son. Christ crucified is the message of life to believers. That's why both word and sacraments focus upon this message. It's at the heart of the gospel. It's it's uh, the only ground of our salvation, to use the language of our catechism. Because here is the perfect satisfaction for my sins. Here, God's saving love and glory are revealed and wonder of wonders, it's all mine. All these benefits if I only receive it with a believing heart. By accepting it. That's the description of true faith huh, that the uh, previous Lord's Day gives. The righteousness of Christ. The satisfaction of Christ. His perfect holiness. It's all imputed to me if I but receive it with a believing heart as if I come with an empty hand and an open mouth to offer nothing, to perform nothing, to do, to accomplish, achieve nothing, but only believe what God has done for me. That's good news. That's the heart of the gospel of good news. Paul in uh, 2 Corinthians says, God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the supreme revelation of God. That's why he also says we preach not ourselves, but Christ, Jesus, our Lord. That was actually the text for my ordination sermon uh, quite a while ago. I haven't forgotten it, and I haven't lost... Uh, a sense of the wonder of this uh, commission that God gives gospel ministers to proclaim this message of God's saving love. That's the message that we believe. That's why Paul preached Christ. And that leads us, secondly, to this uh, uh, second point, and that is how it is communicated. That is how Christ is made known. God manifested his word through preaching. That's uh, the language of of Titus chapter one, verse three, referring to uh, this uh, promise of eternal life which God gave uh, before time began, but has in due time manifested through preaching, through preaching, and that word preaching here it's kind of a it's kind of a a, a special word uh It means to uh, proclaim as a herald, and that's a description of like a fo- an official uh position. A herald was one who would come representing the state, representing the king, and uh he would proclaim the king's message with official authority as a special office and task which he was given. He was authorized directly by the king. Paul understood his task that way. He says it was manifested through preaching, which was committed to me according to the command of God our Savior. Paul understood that he had received this commission from God. It was his task. It was his office. So that whether he felt like it or not, whether he did so freely or felt, he must do so by constraint. He says, woe is me if I preach not the gospel. And you see, that's what the catechism has in mind when it uses this, this special word, preaching. It's the same word that is used in its citation of Romans chapter uh, 10, verse 17, that is kind of like a classic passage that says, faith. So then, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. But before that, there's a kind of progression, a description of faith, that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. But then it says, How shall they then call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in Him whom they have not heard? They must hear Christ in order to come to faith. And then, how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? See, there is that official commissioning. See, that's what the catechism has in view uh, by its reference to preaching. It's something more than personal witness. Personal witness is a, a very valuable thing. And we should all be ready to give an answer to those who ask a reason of the hope that is in us. But it's something more than personal witness. It's even something more than than telling the good news. Uh, The Bible often uses that language also to describe uh, the gospel ministry, but it's used more broadly to even describe the activity of the persecuted church. They went everywhere telling the good news. Proclamation of the gospel by a man ordained to this work by the church, not according to his own ideas, not according to his own desires and feelings. This idea of sending indeed originates with God's call, but that call must be recognized by the church. That's ordination. That's the setting apart and the commissioning to this task by one recognized by the church as God's provision for them, according to the criteria taught in Scripture. So this idea of preaching in scripture has a kind of specialized view that's, that's lost when people say, well, we're all preachers. No, no, not, not quite. Not really. Not with an understanding of what the Bible says about this task and office of preaching. We're all to be witnesses. We're all to live as Christians and shine as lights. But God has ordained the official proclamation of the word in order to save people. How does God work faith in the hearts of people? Through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the preaching of the Holy Gospel. To go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, it says there in verse 21, Since in the wisdom of God the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message that is it's a message that it's judged that is judged foolish but it's through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe you know when when um preachers preach about this subject it makes them rather self-conscious in other words it it almost uh, makes them feel that they're they could be suspected of some uh professional jealousy or pride or something like that that's why i'm trying to uh ground this confession of the catechism uh or show that it is grounded in the teaching of scripture and this creates high expectations from pre- from preaching it teaches us to regard the official means of grace like the preaching of the word and the administration of the sacraments as something special by god's appointment by god's promised blessing and power God uses it to convert sinners. You see, brothers and sisters, that's why inviting people to church is inviting them to the most likely place of confronting God's saving power and grace. One of the most valuable things you can do in your personal testimony is to invite people to church and say, hey, I'll be on the lookout for you. I'll wait at the door. You can sit with me. You want to get them under the preaching of the word of God. Because you really believe that's that's how God saves sinners. God works faith in covenant children through the preaching of His Word. Now, there's often a mystery to this, isn't there? Even as there is a mystery to regeneration in terms of when it precisely takes place. We don't doubt that children could be regenerate in their earliest years. We don't doubt that... that Infants could be regenerated in the womb, but yet we look for the word of God to take effect in the actual lives of people through the means of grace, and how that works is often mysterious, often gradual. Actually, that's how it works in adults too, huh? Paul also describes preaching as that by which Christians are established. That's why we must not misunderstand the catechism here. It says God works faith in our hearts by the preaching of his word and then confirms it by the sacraments, making the point that faith comes by the preaching of the word, not by the sacraments. Sacraments serve to give assurance to believers and to confirm that truth and to help them in that assurance. But that doesn't mean that the working of faith through the preaching is kind of a one-time thing and then the Word no longer serves in that powerful way to work faith in our hearts. It works that initial faith of trusting in the Savior, but it continues to work faith in our hearts. It continues to establish us in the faith, to ground us. To deepen our faith. That's how Paul describes it in uh, Romans chapter uh, 16. Where he says, Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. And then there's doxology. But it's God who establishes Christians through the preaching of Jesus Christ. It's God who brings people to faith and who builds them up through the preaching. That's why it's alarming when people remove themselves from the means of grace. That's why it's so alarming when covenant children quit attending church. It's like the main thing that works to save them is not working. And it's like they've run from the workshop of the Holy Spirit. And they're no longer placing themselves in the most likely context for God's saving power to be manifested through the preaching of the gospel. (coughs) That's why also Christians should expect more from the regular preaching of the gospel for the establishment of their faith than anything else. More than small group fellowship, more than private Bible study, more than personal direct biblical counseling. Sometimes when I have the opportunity to try to help people with specific troubles, temptations, sins, anxieties, problems in relationships, I will characteristically emphasize the importance of attending church. Of going to both services if they can. Why? Is it simply because, uh, if they contribute to the budget, that's, you know, kind of the main work of my salary is to prepare sermons. And it's, you might say, the hardest work that I do and what I spend the most time on. No, no. Even that is because we believe that it's the preaching of the gospel which is the main way by which God works in His people. To build them up in the faith. In other words, it's like the best help that I can give you is to try to prepare good sermons. But it won't help you if you're not there. In fact, maybe it's the preaching that will give you a perspective on your problems that you will not get with personal focused attention to those problems. I've never done it. Sometimes I've been tempted to say to people who want this kind of help, but they don't come to church with regularity to say, you know, I've, I've done the best I can in terms of giving you what I think is the most important counsel I have for you. And, uh, when you start believing and, and, and acting upon that counsel, then I'll, I'll continue to try to help you. But right now you're, you're you're treating me as if the most helpful thing I can do for you, you're not interested in. Does that mean that you just rely on some specialized, tailored help on your terms? Or you don't really want to follow what the Word of God emphasizes as basic and foundational and first when it comes to the way that God works in His people? Is that fair? Like I said, I haven't done it. But our conviction as to the primary means of grace and the importance of preaching leads us to recognize that that's the most important activity we can engage in for our spiritual health and our growth in the faith. And this expectation also is what kept Paul from worldly methods. He certainly didn't rely on his personal charisma or power. He says... I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. Then he says, I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. Imagine uh, his host, the night before he was preaching, watching him pace the floor or notice that he didn't have much of an appetite or maybe see his hands shaking on the way to church and thinking, This is the Apostle Paul. This guy is so nervous. It's like he's afraid. Where is his confidence? He didn't have self-confidence. He felt what an awesome task it is. He felt his inability to pull it off. But he believed that it was the means that God had appointed to save people. And so he's going to preach Christ. And he's not going to use worldly methods, right? He doesn't uh, resort to oratorical techniques to impress people with, with his eloquence or witty phrases. My speech, my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. He preached the Word. The Word inspired by the Spirit. And he used words taught by the Spirit. We hear that also in verse 13. These things, that is, this gospel that has now been revealed, these things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual things. Words which the Holy Spirit teaches, well, where do you find them? This is a big book, brothers and sisters. And the more that the preaching reflects the riches of scripture and uses the language of scripture, the more the work of the Holy Spirit is respected and the more we can expect that the Lord will bless his word. It was said of uh, uh, John uh, Bunyan that you could, you could prick him anywhere and he led bibline it's like he knew the scriptures so well that it just it just whatever topic he was writing on it's like the truth of scripture poured out of him in in the language of scripture paul says to timothy hold fast to the form of sound words use the words revealed in scripture and explain their meaning from scripture don't borrow your language from pop psychology in pop psychology, the language of addictions has replaced the language of idolatry and lust. In pop psychology, people are concerned with, with self-love instead of love for God and their neighbor. Pop psychology talks about self-acceptance and self-forgiveness. As if, well, that really has to come first. You have to deal with that first before you can grow in your faith. And and what? Self-forgiveness? Find that in Scripture. Scriptural language teaches us to believe in God's forgiveness and to receive the comfort and joy the fact that though I'm still messed up in a lot of ways, I'm accepted in the Beloved. I could go on. You know that these are issues of our day. They're issues in much of the professing church where modern obsessions over personal truth, your truth, or modern obsessions with uh, my emotional safety, don't say anything that upsets me or disturbs me. You're assaulting me. You're damaging me. Biblical preachers biblical will be throttled and silenced if they try to cater to that. They will not preach the word of God. They will cater to what people want. And they'll rely on worldly methods to be effective. And that leads us finally to consider how this preaching becomes effective. See, Paul was not concerned with being with it. He just really didn't care. The Jews request a sign and the Greeks Seek after wisdom. And in effect, Paul says, we don't cater to them. We don't give them what they want. We give them what they really need, even though they don't know that they need it, and even though they will reject it unless a miracle takes place. The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. For they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. I had a wonderful experience some weeks ago where a rather recent new member of the church uh really encouraged me with the simple words, I can understand your preaching. <laughs> and uh that's encouraging because I've also heard, you know, the, the minister is just way too deep. I, I can't follow it. You know, he's... And again, without judgment, I I ask myself, what's going on here? Is it a difference between really hunger and thirst and an interest in the Word? Is it a matter of spiritual discernment that gives people an appetite for the simple proclamation of Christ and an exposition of Scripture and an attempt to apply it to hungry souls? It makes a big difference, doesn't it? In 2 Corinthians 4, again, where Paul speaks of the the content of his message of Christ. He says, if our, if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age was blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. If people don't get it, if they judge his methods and his message as foolish, no surprise It's not going to change because he preaches Christ and he doesn't rely on human receptivity to the message. Yes, only by a miracle will people get it, but gospel preachers believe in miracles. Otherwise, they would give up their work. And you will give up endeavoring to give testimony to people unless you believe in miracles because you're going to be disappointed in a hurry. I've done some street work. I've done some efforts to explain the gospel and try to capture people's interests long enough to have a brief conversation and almost the invariable response in this world and this culture that we live in is here's another religious nut trying to brainwash me. There's no, there's no receptivity to the message. You can be as kind and gracious and come up with the most uh, compelling hooks. Don't count on it. We have to be faithful. We want to get better at it, but we can't rely upon anything that we can say or do. We have to rely upon the Holy Spirit to perform a miracle, if anybody's even going to take an interest in it. But all believers believe in miracles, right? We sing, I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. You don't have to have a a before and after conversion story to sing that song because you know yourself. By nature, you're blind by nature, you're unmoved at the gospel. But if you have beheld by faith the glory of God revealed in Jesus Christ, if this message of the Savior has captured your attention and your heart, it's because a miracle took place. Amazing grace. And there's a miraculous power working through preaching and through the sacraments. Well, consider that. It's the Holy Spirit who makes them effective. There's an ongoing power uh, that is worked through the word. Our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance. When you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. Not just work. It effectively works in you who believe. We come to church expecting God to work. We don't measure that in the short term. We don't measure that by our feelings. We believe in God's way of transforming us through the renewing of our minds, through the preaching of that word. And this belief drives, this belief drives Christian practice. That's why we want to make diligent use of the means of grace. That's why we don't debate whether we're going to go to church for the second service. You know, sometimes I feel like I should be preaching these sermons in the morning service. Uh, (laughs) This ought not to be a matter of debate. Not if we're able to come. Well, of course we come. Not because it's our duty only. Sometimes, yeah. But it's a duty that we embrace by faith. We believe that it's good that it's good for us that we come to honor God who calls us to worship twice. If we're able to come and we want to be diligent in the use of the means of grace and the use of the sacraments, we'll consider that uh, later. Now, these are ordinary things, and again, you, you can't measure them. You can't measure their effectiveness in the short term. But you never know what might happen during a worship service. I think that was a statement of of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. You never know when God might come down in a special way, that he might give special help to the preacher, that he might work in the hearts of people in such a way as to awaken some to the truth. Maybe I'm a bit biased. I trust that I'm preaching what the Word of God teaches about the primary means of grace, but... It was my experience. I was converted during a worship service. There were a number of years where I, I, was, I was more sporadic. I didn't, I usually came at least once on Sunday, not because I liked going to church, but I had this fear of completely turning away from going to church. And so I kept going. I had friends who say, why do you go to church? We'd get high on the way to church. We didn't come with reverence or worship, but it was in a worship service where I was convicted of my sin. And convinced that I was outside. That's why I say to people who are unconverted, keep coming to church. You see, this is one of the ways in which God saves covenant people. You know, we have visitors that come among us off the street. And they come and they listen. They're unmoved. They're unconverted. But there's nothing to bring them back. Nothing whatsoever. No family connections. No pressures. No expectations. No consequences if they quit coming. Easy come, easy go. For you covenant young people, even if you don't come with your hearts, you have expectations. You have family pressures. There are consequences. Oh, those are precious. Because those are the things that God uses to convert people. And it may happen a sudden, all of a sudden, or it may happen gradually where your heart is being softened. By the word of God. And that word begins to work in you. You begin to take it seriously. And those invitations of the gospel that say, Come, everyone who thirsts, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes, at some point, it seems clear. It seems simple. Oh, that's all it is. I must come to this Savior in my sin, my guilt, my inability to change myself, my aggravations, because I'm so privileged and yet I've got a hard heart come come as you are and god by his power can can bring that message to the hearts of people and bring them to faith through his word or you never know how you might be uh i heard a, i heard a comment uh, even this morning of someone who says you know it was during a worship service in a, another church don't even know what the minister was preaching about but at a point in the sermon both he and his wife got clarity, got clarity on a very important question about their lives as Christians. And that's exciting. Yes, that's what God does. And when we come to church, we may expect that he might do something like that. So we diligently use the means of grace, and along with that we pray. Because we don't expect that they work automatically. We don't expect that it's just the same old, same old. We pray, we pray that the Holy Spirit would illuminate our hearts and try to think and prepare ourselves to come into the presence of God. We come with the expectation of hearing God's voice through a vessel of clay with his own personality problems and weaknesses and sins. But we believe that God uses broken vessels. God uses weak things to bring to nothing those things that are mighty. And so we expect and pray that God will work. Because that power is of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit blows like the wind where it wills. And there's a sovereignty. But we have every encouragement to pray with expectation that he will bless the means that God has appointed to do his saving work. Amen.